Good afternoon. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, January 6th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Happy New Year. We return with new shows after a holiday break today and in just a few minutes, the latest surge in COVID cases and how area hospitals are dealing with Omicron. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore has that information for us. Later in our second half hour, forest land comprises nearly half of foreign-owned land in the United States, along with agricultural lands in Arkansas. It's not new. It just takes on uh, different flavors over the decades, uh, going back to the origins of, of the United States. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Furlick has that story later today. The Arkansas Department of Health reports another single-day record of new cases of COVID-19 in Arkansas. Nearly 7,500 positive diagnoses are included in yesterday's report, with an additional eight deaths from the virus. Active cases up by more than 5,900 in the last 24 hours, now number more than 38,000. Hospitalizations also increased by more than 40 patients. The ADH also reports since last February 1st, the percentage of people who have died from COVID-19 who are not fully immunized at about 85%. Dr. Joe Thompson, the president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, says schools need to be taking action to slow the spread of the Omicron variant. All schools should have a mask requirement for all grades and staff in place immediately. We're asking you to redouble and recommit to efforts on hand washing, sanitation, social distancing, increased ventilation. To consider and be prepared to transition to virtual learning at least for a short period of time, as Omicron is such a more infectious variant than we've experienced before. Dr. Thompson says while the Omicron variant appears to not attack lungs as aggressively as earlier strains, other organs in the body do appear to be more at risk. He says the rising daily death rate indicates the new variant is not an innocuous variety that can be ignored. He says being fully vaccinated, including a booster shot, is the overwhelming best protection against the virus. Fayetteville schools are re-implementing a mask requirement. Increased number of cases among residents in the school district is triggering an automatic mask policy renewal. All people on all Fayetteville school campuses are required to wear masks until further notice. Meanwhile, the future school in Fort Smith is scheduled to conduct a special board meeting at 5 tonight to discuss a return to a mask policy there. Oklahoma State Department of Health reports just more than 3,900 new cases in yesterday's accounting and 27 newly reported deaths there. Theater Squared will again require patrons to show proof of vaccination or proof of a negative antigen test within 48 hours of a performance. That policy in effect for the entire run of the mountaintop that begins later this month and lasts through mid-February. Northwest Arkansas Regional Airport will begin rolling out a new logo soon. Yesterday, XNA unveiled a new branding approach that includes a lowercase use of the letters XNA in the same font and design, as the recently developed NWA Life Works Here branding launched by the Northwest Arkansas Council. Nelson Peacock, the CEO and president of the Northwest Arkansas Council, says he's pleased the branding motifs of both the airport and the council's work will match. We are a collection of communities, each with their own uh, identities, uh, that's for sure. But collectively, they share a lot of commonalities when it comes to uh, quality of life, economic opportunity, inclusivity. And so to the rest of the nation, we want to tell a cohesive uh, story and the brand identity helps us do that. And I think by XNA adopting it uh, and really helping us to uh, expand uh, what Northwest Arkansas is all about through this brand identity is a great uh, step. Alex English, public relations and marketing specialist with XNA, says the new logo will be placed on signs, vehicles and screens at the airport beginning in a few weeks. And the new branding will continue through 2022. Eventually, mostly sunny today. High temperatures will top out in the mid-20s in northwest Arkansas. Wind chills throughout the day between 8 and 15. Highs should be around 35 this afternoon in the Arkansas River Valley. Lows tonight across the region from 14 to 22. This is Ozarks at Large. Even though we've been dealing with COVID-19 for about 22 months, it's not clear if the end is anywhere in sight. 
The last few days, we've seen record-breaking daily case numbers from the Arkansas Department of Health. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore reached out to Mercy Fort Smith and Washington Regional to hear directly from the health care providers. On Tuesday, Governor Asa Hutchinson shared during his weekly press briefing that Arkansas hit a new record for daily cases of COVID-19, over 6,500 cases in one day. The next day, that record was shattered with a new daily case count of nearly 7,500 cases. This is due in large part to the latest variant of the virus, which is being called Omicron. This variant has proven to be highly infectious, resulting in positive cases, even for those who have been vaccinated and boosted. Larry Shackelford is the president and CEO of Washington Regional Medical Center in Fayetteville. And he points out that not only are we seeing a lot of positive cases, but the positivity rate is concerningly high as well. The governor said that it's uh, somewhere around 25 percent statewide. And here at at, uh, Washington Regional for our testing center, uh, we've seen uh, positivity rates approaching 30 percent this week. That means for every 10 tests Washington Regional is conducting, three of them are coming back as positive. And that 25% number statewide doesn't include at-home tests that are being administered either. Kevin Davis is an infectious disease physician at Mercy Fort Smith. And when he hears numbers like this, he's worried. It's very concerning from a couple of different perspectives. One just being that whenever I see 25% positivity rate, at a time when I know that that there are a lot of at-home tests being done, that that number actually is probably under underreporting the actual positivity rate. Um, I think that there's probably more than that than than the the rate would typically reflect, and so that tells me that there's a pretty high burden of new cases. And following with that makes me worry that even though there are There are reports and evidence that the overall percentage of people who are getting seriously ill from this variant of COVID-19, that with the higher volume of cases that the hospitals are going to start filling up as a result. And we're already really seeing that in the numbers that are being reported daily. At-home COVID tests are currently hard to come by. So for most Arkansans looking to get tested, they're having to go to local clinics or to hospitals like Washington Regional. Here's Shackelford again. Our testing center is currently a drive-through testing center, which is is convenient and a, and a safe way of, of doing testing. We're open seven days a, a week, but... What we've seen with uh, Omicron, particularly, you know, coming out of Christmas and New Year's is a pretty significant increase in those needing testing. On Tuesday when we spoke, Shackelford said that Washington Regional had over 300 people come through to get tested. So far, indications show that while Omicron is highly infectious, it has not seemed to be quite as severe, especially compared to the Delta variant. However, Dr. Davis of Mercy Fort Smith is still concerned about the impact on the hospital just from a massively high number of cases. Even with a a lower percentage of hospitalization with this variant, already having, you know, six to seven thousand new cases in a day, plus all the cases that aren't being reported, these are much higher volumes that that percentage could end up still being a large volume of patients coming into the hospital. Davis says there have been times where a third of all of the patients in his hospital were there because they were sick with COVID-19. And that's a major burden for a hospital that usually operates about 80 to 90 percent capacity, even outside of a pandemic. Are you seeing local medical centers or, or, or hospitals maybe at smaller scale than, than what Mercy is in, say, Crawford or Logan County, uh, where you're seeing patients who just are coming over to Mercy because the smaller local hospitals are being overwhelmed. As you're talking about, y'all are seeing, you know, near capacity for COVID alone. Are you seeing from these other local hospitals where they're having to transfer to, to where you're at because of this? I would add on to that and say that we've actually had to have patients who are who are transferred from a far distance away because of capacity issues at other hospitals. So we've had patients who are coming from 
you know, the Oklahoma City region who are having to be transferred to to Fort Smith because of capacity issues in Oklahoma City. I think that where we're at right now is the larger cities have a tendency to have higher spikes of this variant first and that we're getting some of the spillover from other patients that might be able may never be able to be serviced at those larger facilities and are having to be transferred to Fort Smith. January marks 22 months that we've been in a pandemic. It's been an almost constant all-hands-on-deck mentality for healthcare workers and hospital staff across the region. And Shackelford from Washington Regional points out the toll it's taking on them all. We're now nearly two years into this, and our healthcare workers are tired, not only you know from a physical standpoint, but just just from you know all the emotion that has has gone into this. What we're really seeing at this stage of the pandemic is is just everyone being being very tired, uh, being being very drained. Uh, we're also uh, like uh, a lot of health systems are seeing workers who are testing positive, and that creates times that they have to be on quarantine and and away from their job, and of course that job still has to to be done. Davis says the feeling is similar at Mercy Fort Smith. I think the biggest phenomenon that we've seen is that we're seeing some of the employees who are contracting COVID and by virtue, they're having to leave work. And so there's having to be a little bit more than normal of the the shifting of of staffing to accommodate for missing personnel. Um, There's a lot of, you know, there are certain pockets within the hospital system and the clinics where there will be, you know, larger than normal people who are out. And so they're have, having to do a little bit more of coverage personnel. As I mentioned earlier, yes, some vaccinated folks are testing positive for COVID-19. But studies and data have shown that those getting severe cases and needing to be hospitalized are almost exclusively those who are unvaccinated. And Dr. Davis says he thinks the boosters are being underutilized by our Kansans. There have been a couple of studies that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine this past month that showed that the number of mild cases of diseases of disease is reduced with the booster vaccines and the severity of the cases is reduced with the booster vaccines. One of those papers suggested that in people who are age 50 and older, that if they got the booster vaccine, that mortality was reduced by about 90 percent. So I would encourage anybody to get vaccinated. These vaccines are going to have, on a population scale, have some degree of adverse effects. But the adverse effects of the vaccines are nowhere near the adverse effects of COVID-19. If you're looking to get your booster or if you're looking to get your very first COVID-19 vaccine, it's not too late. You can find a list of vaccine locations near you by going to our website, KUAF.com, today. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. As Matthew said, there are several vaccination clinics scheduled throughout the early days of this winter, including the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville, hosting one for anybody five and older Saturday morning from 9 to noon. The shots are free, no insurance required, no social security number needed. There will be a drive through vaccination clinic at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Northwest Arkansas campus in Fayetteville tomorrow. From 10 a.m. until 4.30, that clinic will be closed from 1 until 2. Ahead on today's show... The show goes on at Walton Art Center. An officer and a gentleman brings 2022 in, and we'll talk with David Wayne Britton about his real-life naval career and his work on stage playing a Navy sergeant in the musical. That's in about 12 minutes on our show. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College in Conway, home of Life Launch, a new one-week residential summer program for rising high school juniors and seniors to explore career planning and experience college life. Now accepting applications for its inaugural session, which begins June 2022. More information is available at hendricks.edu slash life launch. A coalition of activist groups is working on a new proposal to change the way political district boundaries are redrawn in Arkansas. The group People Not Politicians announced they filed a proposed amendment to the state constitution that would create a citizens redistricting commission composed of three Republicans, three Democrats, and three members not affiliated with either party. Group spokesperson Lori Evans says the goal is to limit political influence in the redistricting process. 
that will mean a, a system, a more transparent system um, for redistricting where voters will be able to choose their own politicians rather than right now we see politicians kind of choosing their groups of voters. And um, that creates a system where elected officials are then accountable to special interest groups and politicians rather than to voters themselves. Potential commissioners would apply for the position with a three-person panel made up of retired Supreme Court justices and appeals court judges choosing members. Evans says people who have been lobbyists, elected officials, or political operatives in the past five years would be barred from serving on the commission. And that's so that it would be, you know, a group of nine Arkansans who um, are not beholden to political parties, but are invested in a free and transparent redistricting process. Organizers must collect just under 90,000 signatures from at least 15 Arkansas counties by a July deadline in order for the proposal to go before voters on the November 2022 ballot. Welcome to today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Today we're going to speak with Jackie Hancock. He's the president and CEO of the United Way of Northwest Arkansas, and they've got a summer internship program that's proving popular enough that they're looking for additional corporate partners to fund expansion. Also, we've got details about a land donation to a local nonprofit for a new facility in Lowell, and there's a new chief fundraiser at the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. We will discuss those stories after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. The Tyson Summer Community Internship Program is a partnership between United Way of Northwest Arkansas and Tyson Foods. It began in 2019 and allows 22 full-time college students to participate in an eight-week paid summer internship, working for other nonprofits in Benton and Washington counties. A grant from Tyson Foods provides enough funding so that each nonprofit receives $4,200 to pay each intern. We've got some details about the program in a recent issue of the Business Journal. I also spoke recently with United Way of Northwest Arkansas President and CEO Jackie Hancock to discuss. Our role in this is to facilitate uh, the nonprofits in the community, um, to encourage them to uh, take one of the interns um, for, for the eight weeks. And, um, and then Tyson, in turn, actually pays for that intern's uh, employment. Uh, they're actually uh, an, a, a part-time employer at, at, at these uh, these organizations, and so um, it works out well. And this year, we for the first time, we actually had more applicants uh, for the uh, for the internship uh, than we have uh, organizations that can can host them. So uh, it, the the program's really growing. Uh, it's growing quickly. Um, and the kids get um, they get immersed in a, a lot of uh, things that are you know nonprofit wise, and so uh, they get a pretty well rounded um, uh, experience in that. And, and the, the, the really cool thing about it is that it's it's an internship that really uh, requires them to um, put their skills and abilities. Uh, into solving a problem, uh, solving a business problem um, for the for these organizations, or you know, helping them to to complete a project or something like that. So, uh, uh, 
uh, like I said, this is uh, you know we we enjoy doing it. So yeah, yeah. So you you you've mentioned the you, you've got enough funding. I think it's uh, Tyson Foods. You've got enough to fund twenty two internship slots, and they get they grant you the money, and you provide the funding to each nonprofit. So you talked about the interest. If you had additional funding from Tyson or other, another corporation, which I think is is the avenue you're trying to go, how many slots could you fill? You know, in other words, what sort of response have you gotten these past two or three years from both the students and the nonprofit side to 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 make these these nonprofit internship pairings each summer? So, when we first started, we um, you know, it was it was a little bit of a challenge for us to get um, to get host sites, um, but now that the program has has been around for a couple of years and uh, and the other organizations in the community see, uh, you know, they've heard about this and they uh, they see what these kids are are capable of, and so you know, it would not surprise me if if we had additional funding. Um, that we could get probably another 15, 20 organizations um, to come online with us, um, you know, pretty quickly if we had if we had that kind of funding. Um, the, the kids that that are part of this program, um, you know, I, I really can't brag on on, on these uh, folks enough. They are they are bright, um, energetic. Um, they're you know they're well educated. Um, and uh, they, you know, they come in and, and they really put their skills and abilities um, and help help these organizations solve a business problem. So uh, who are the applicants? Uh, who, who could apply? Students from the U of A or is it other area colleges or do, who are the applicants? Uh, a lot of our applicants are, are uh, U of A applicants. Uh, we get some John Brown folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get a lot of uh, a lot of different folks right. in the community we've had um you know some interest outside so the, the other interesting thing about this is that you know at, at at the tyson the different tyson sites um uh that they have in you know other parts of the country um people are actually calling us now and say hey how can we get tyson to do that in our community mm. so, <laughs> uh, it's really it's really taken off and it's you know it's a it's really a you know it's a tribute to Tyson because they they recognize that there was a, an opportunity to help uh, help these kids get some of this kind of experience and the really cool thing is that now we've been uh, at this for a couple of years you know the kids that have actually are actually graduating um, are some of them are returning back to the nonprofit community for their you know for their first jobs out of college or. Um, you know, still staying active with with some of these organizations. So that's kind of a, you know, that's a good thing. And that, that actually, that's you know, in a really um, um, weird way, that's that's kind of what we what we want to have happen. We want to have these kids stay engaged with these organizations. So you said that Tyson Foods sees the opportunity. How do you sell that opportunity to uh, the business community at large? Maybe other businesses that want to join you in getting behind this and growing the program. How, how do you sell it to them? How do you? What's it going to take to expand the outreach to more uh, to make the to make the program grow? I just think it's. I think that's pretty. It's a real easy sell. Um, uh, it's just you know what what we've done with outcomes. Um, we we can. Each one of these kids has a story um, of what they've learned and what they've accomplished, and each one of these organizations um, can tell you um, that you know they've had such a good experience. I mean, the 22 organizations that we that we started with, most the vast majority of those are still with us, hmm. um, and they you know they just recognize that that this is such a, a really good thing. It's a good thing for them. Um, it's a good thing for, you know, the kids to get this kind of experience. And so it, it really, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. And that is Jackie Hancock with the United Way of Northwest Arkansas discussing the Tyson Summer Community Internship Program. You can learn more at unitedwaynwa.org and we've got a story online at nwabusinessjournal.com. The Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas has a new chief fundraiser with the recent promotion of Aaron Rogers. Rogers has been Walton College's Associate Director of Development since 2018. 
She's filling the role previously held by John Irk, who resigned last summer to take over as Vice Chancellor for Institutional Advancement for UAMS. And local nonprofit Equestrian Bridges is planning to build a new riding and wellness center in Lowell. Executive Director Shanna Dozier said the facility will be built on land that was recently donated by the J.B. and John L. Hunt family. For those stories and more, be sure and follow us online at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can keep up with our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. The musical An Officer and a Gentleman is guiding the Walton Arts Center into 2022. The production, inspired by the movie of the same name, is a love story between Naval Officer Candidate Zach and his girlfriend Paula. The musical is also a love story for the 1980s, with not just the familiar Up Where We Belong from the 1982 film, but other 1980s pop from Pat Benatar, Men at Work, and Sticks. The narrative's evolution hinges not just on Paula and Zach, but Marine Gunnery Sergeant Foley, the National Tours Sergeant Foley is portrayed by David Wayne Britton, who joins us now on the phone. David Wayne Britton, welcome to Ozarks at Large. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. All right, first of all, are you as bothered as I am that the 1980s are 40 years ago? You know, <laughs> sometimes I feel, especially with the cast that I'm with, because everybody in my cast seems to be in their mid-20s or, or younger. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, this has been a long way off. Part of your role there is to, you know, not make fun of, but explain. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it's like, I, I believe that Foley was a street guy at one time. And when he joined the service, he was put in a, in, in a situation where he lost friends because the officers that were leading him, didn't have a clue what they were doing. And I think that's why he decided he wanted to be your drill instructor because he wanted to bring out the best possible product and put on the field of battle that could possibly be done because his parents live in America. His friends live in America. His friends' parents live in America. And he wants to make sure that nothing happens to them. He wants to keep them as safe as he possibly can. And the only way to do that is to turn out a great product at officer candidate school. That's interesting. Is that something you do with any character that you might inhabit? You, you figure out what their backstory might be? I think it's vitally important to do that because if you don't know who he was before you read the, 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 the dialogue that you get, it's kind of, I think it's really hard to interpret who he's going to be. You know, if you know, well, okay, he had a very bad childhood and this guy was a priest. Why did he become a priest? Or why did he become a cop? Why did he become a doctor? You know, if you know what he was off the page, I think it's easier to determine who he's going to be on, on stage or on film or on television. Well, and when you have a character like Sergeant Foley, who is, of course, uh, on, uh, in, at one point, um, you know, very stern and very much a disciplinarian, it would... I think in lesser hands, it could become a two-dimensional character, and that's obviously not what you want Sergeant Foley or any character you portray to be. Right, 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 exactly. You, you do want people to understand that he's a real, real, well-rounded person and that, yeah, he may be screaming and he may be yelling and he may be tough, but he's, he's doing it for one reason and one reason only, to make sure that he brings out the best in the person that he's doing it to that he can. I have not seen yet the production, but I know that in the movie, uh, Sergeant Foley gets in Zach Mayo's face. I mean, very close and, and at a high mm -hmm. volume. Is that something that happens on stage? And if so, how did you and your fellow actors prepare for that? Well, I know, and it is that way on, on, on the stage. Um, for instance, what I did, and it just till recently, a lot of my cast members, I didn't call them by their real names. I called them by their stage names. And they used to have a, they still do at times, they'll ask me, hey, what's Zach's real name? 
And I, I uh, uh, oh, Wes, you know, but because it, it was important for me when I look at him, I see Mayo. When I look at William, I see Perryman because I never want to confuse them with the guy I walk around and have breakfast with or, you know, go see a movie with. I want to make sure that those people are the people that I'm interacting with on the stage. Not only do you bring, obviously, your acting chops to this role, but you bring experience uh, in the service, correct? Yes, sir. I was in the service. I was in the Navy from 76 to 1981. And the funny thing is, I was almost actually in this movie. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was stationed on the USS Constellation, and then I got transferred uh, to... um, the USS Enterprise that was in dry dock in Bremerton, Washington. When I get there, I ran into a couple of guys that I'd seen, you know, in the Philippines or, you know, around the Navy, around the world. And they said, bro, if you'd have been here like a couple of months earlier, you could have been in this movie. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they said, yeah, we did this movie. And I, well, what, was, what was the name? It was a couple of them, like, I don't remember the movie, but the girl was hot to death. Said, no, really, what was the name of the movie? And then guys just said, well, one guy said it was an awesome gentleman, Lou Gossett Jr. Now, as you well know, Louis Gossett Jr. was the Denzel before Denzel. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy's the ultimate actor. And um, sure enough, they because they filmed it in Bremerton, Washington. And there's some of the guys that you see in all the way through the film are guys that I knew. Wow. What would... if I'd have gotten there two months early, I could have possibly been in the film. <laughs> what would you, the 1981... David Wayne Britton had thought if you would have heard that, you know, 40 years later, you're playing that Lou Gossett role, the, the role that Lou Gossett made famous for audiences all across the country. Wow. You know, that's a good question. I don't even, first of all, I don't even think I could wrap my mind around that. Because who sees themselves 40 years later? You know, and when you're 20, 21, 22, you don't even know that 40 years exist down the line. You're just living for the moment. But looking back on it now, especially after I met Mr. Gossett, it was, it was a, it's going to be a privilege of a lifetime. That's exactly, you're going to get a chance to live the privilege of a lifetime. Taking on a role that you watch the man actually win the Academy Award for, and you get to walk around the country riding around on planes and buses and staying in hotels and go out on the stage and show them what this guy did, hopefully what Lewis Gottsa Jr. did to earn that Academy Award. If I can just give him a little bit of what he gave us, then I did my job. Let me see if I got this correct. You were an aircraft director when you were on the USS Constellation? I was an aircraft director on the USS Constellation, yes. I worked in the hangar bay. So when you are doing that, can you see any parallel between that and then the construction of a musical or a play? Are there any parallels there? Um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't realize the difficulty of doing a musical until I got involved and I got cast in this because everything is timing. So, yeah, there's a possibility of that because on the hangar bay, it's not as intricate as it is on uh, on the uh, on on the flight deck. Mm-hmm. Flight deck is is a completely different animal. And I was on I was on you know the hangar deck, and that's where we park everything. The timing of the musical thing, for instance, with my character, my dialogue. If I don't deliver my cue line right on time that music may not come in on time. Mm. And if I throw off the music, then I throw off the whole production. So it's, it's, it really, I had no clue that's what it was about because I had never done a musical before. And it, that just, it, it really freaked me out because I remember in, in rehearsal and I didn't come in exactly when I was supposed to and Dick Scanlon, who was our director and also wrote the book, you know, he was very adamant about David. Everything hinges on you coming in with the right line at the right time. And he told me this great story. He pulled me to the side one day. Normally when he's giving notes, he'll pull you to the side in the rehearsal hall, you know, 
tell you, okay, this is what I was thinking about. This is how I'd like you to bring this on. And he said, you know, take a walk with me. So we took a walk outside of the rehearsal hall. And he said, David, and now he's a little bit taller than I am. He says, you ever baked a potato before? I was like, what? Yeah, have you ever baked a potato? I says, uh, yeah. He says, you ever not set the oven at the right temperature? And then when you try to set it right, the potato is never quite right. And I said, yeah. And he walked away. And I'm looking at him as he walks. And then he turned around. And when he turned around, he knew I had understood what he was saying. When you hit the stage, your oven has to be at the right temperature every single time. Because you may have it a little bit hot. You can pull the, up, the potato out. But if you kept it in that oven and it, the temperature wasn't right, you'll never get it right again. David Wayne Britton is Marine Gunnery Sergeant Foley in the national touring production of An Officer and a Gentleman, the musical at Walton Arts Center through Sunday. You can find out more at waltonartcenter.org. David Wayne Britton, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a great time, man. Appreciate it. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us as we return from a holiday break. Forest land compromised nearly half of foreign-owned lands in the United States. As of last year, foreign individuals or business entities accounted for more than 35 million acres of U.S. farmland, which doubled over the last decade. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich recently spoke with Harrison Pittman, director of the National Agricultural Law Center at the University of Arkansas, about the regulatory and market implications. Harrison Pittman is a professor of agricultural law at the University of Arkansas, as well as director of the nonpartisan National Agricultural Law Center at the U of A System of Agriculture, a leading source for agricultural and food law research and information. So first, our data goes to December 31st, 2019, and there's a federal reporting act, the Agricultural Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. And so any of the data we have about foreign ownership comes from that reporting process dictated by that statute. Pittman is referring to the 1978 Agriculture Foreign Investment Disclosure Act. Forestry is one of three primary components of that data. Uh, there's also pasture land and cropland. And so, uh, so just to kind of keep that big picture in mind. Now, the largest portion of what is owned by foreign interests or foreign investors is in forestry. And it's, it's gonna typically represent about half of all foreign owned land or private agricultural land in the country uh, will be in forestry. Uh, your largest state I think is Maine. Uh, that's there by, despite their size, they make up uh, a healthy percentage of overall foreign owned land. And almost all of that's forestry. And that primarily would trace to Canadian interests. Most of the foreign forest land ownership is concentrated in the southwestern and southeastern U.S., including in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama. Canada is the largest foreign investor, he says, along with the United Kingdom, Germany, and the Netherlands. These are either long-term leaseholds or fee purchases, mostly by foreign-owned business. I think there's going to be different reasons uh, and different investors will have motivations uh, that that may not be uniform over time and uh, and among you know different groups. But you could have, you know, your baseline of it's a sound investment, you know, that uh, that sometimes it may perform better than the stock market. Uh, other times you have companies that, for example, maybe there's a pest outbreak in Canada that uh, that could have a real impact on the availability of timber supply. Some foreign corporations invest in U.S. forest land as a hedge against volatile financial markets, he says. Forests also serve as a critical carbon sink, according to the nonprofit American Forests. Forest lands store up to 15% of annually produced carbon dioxide fossil fuel emissions. Through photosynthesis, trees, plants, and grasslands sequester or absorb carbon from the atmosphere in the form of CO2, now referred to as carbon sequestration. A growing number of corporations and businesses will purchase carbon credits made available through certain forest preserves to offset polluting practices. There's a huge 
private sector and public sector push towards exploring, you know, the evolution of carbon markets and investing in that. Um, and for proponents of, of these markets and, and moving in this direction in terms of state and federal policy and private sector policy as well, agriculture in general is regarded as really one of the only places that you can really move the needle with respect to carbon sequestration and offsets. Uh, forestry is not the only part, but it's a big part of that. Foreign ownership traces back to the origins of America with the British seizing lands from indigenous peoples, dislocating tribes from their traditional land base. Ironically, English law, common law, Pittman says, place strict limits on aliens acquiring or owning property in America. The Crown, who really wanted to control who uh who lived here and, you know, and therefore who could, uh, who could own property, who could, who could basically partake in, in daily life. Uh, and for a time period in which people are arriving from all over the world, it really was an obvious tension. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's where that, that originated. And from there, you can pretty well trace this issue from a, for a legal and historical standpoint to phases as the country moved westward. Um, and, you know, territories became states and so forth. And, uh, you know, so that, you know, by the time you, you fast forward to the 1930s and 1940s, you, you're starting to see laws that they've progressed all the way out to the uh, West Coast. Uh, and they take on a completely different tone. They're more of, you know, a saying I'm paraphrasing, uh, you know, we're going to prohibit anyone of, of Japanese or Chinese ancestry to own own land. Under the Declaration of Independence, he says, states promulgated laws on foreign ownership, which continue to be amended and enacted. In our state code, we have had a law that that, that is the opposite of a prohibition. Uh, we don't prohibit foreign ownership of, of land in Arkansas. Uh, and that's been the posture, uh, you know, for all but maybe 40 years of our state's history and our state constitution has a provision that says that resident aliens will be treated no, no differently than anyone else in, in this area. Uh, we did have a legislative proposal in the last legislative session that sought to change that. Um, it went through numerous amendments and ultimately um, the law really ended up, it didn't, it doesn't really, it didn't really change this the paradigm on foreign ownership of land in the state of Arkansas. An Arkansas amendment, Senate Bill 312, now Act 1046, passed last session concerning ownership and possession of real property, requires stricter reporting to the state along with the Fed. You do have states that are, they literally say, there shall be no prohibition. You know, they're not only not silent, they affirmatively will say uh, there is no prohibition. You know, Alabama would be one. Pittman says Missouri strictly limits foreign ownership of U.S. agricultural lands to 1%. And so Missouri would have an almost exact opposite history of the state of Arkansas um, uh, on, on its treatment of foreign ownership of agricultural land. Pittman says efforts to amend the Federal Defense Production Act will allow the Secretary of Agriculture to formally join the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. to better measure and monitor the purchase of American lands. And they review transactions by foreign entities or involving foreign entities, uh, but they would. this would bring in the Secretary of Agriculture to also be at the table to review those with respect to national security concerns. Um, and so... It's not new. It just takes on uh, different flavors over the decades, uh, going back to the origins of, of the United States. And I, I would think looking forward, you know, over the next, I'd say, couple of years, uh, maybe longer, who knows how these things play out. But we're in the midst of like probably what is like the fifth time that this has really been a, a rekindled interest in the United States. Uh, so I would anticipate states around the country, it wouldn't surprise me at all over this next year. As we come into January, a lot of state legislatures come back into session around the country. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see a handful of states make proposals 
Harrison Pittman says foreign investment in American agricultural lands increasingly has become a politically thorny issue involving real estate planning, contract, as well as constitutional law. We link to his webinar on this subject on our news site. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Razorback women's basketball team seeks a first conference win tonight in Nashville against Vanderbilt. Razorback's first scheduled SEC game was postponed because of COVID complications with the Mississippi team. Arkansas then lost at home Sunday to Tennessee. After tonight's game, Arkansas returns to Bud Walton Arena Sunday afternoon, hosting Missouri. This is Leah Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. More than any other time, these days we need strength, clear minds, hope, and music to hold on to. Sound Perimeter started today with French composer Maurice Ravel and his Pavane for a Dead Princess, interpreted by the French National Orchestra under the direction of Dalia Stasevska. Maurice Ravel described his piece as, quote, an evocation of a dance that a little princess might, in former times, have danced at the Spanish court. Today, we, too, go back to our memories of better times to comfort our souls. That was an excerpt from Maurice Ravel's Pavane for a Dead Princess, interpreted by the French National Orchestra under the direction of Dalia Stasevska. Alfred Schnitke wrote collected songs where every verse is filled with grief as the second movement for his concerto for mixed choir. The famed Kronos Quartet arranged this movement for a string quartet, and today we present you with their beautiful rendition. The depth of this piece is beyond words, transforming sorrow into solace and beauty. Thank you. 
That was a Kronos Quartet interpreting an excerpt from Alfred Schnitke's collected songs where every verse is filled with grief. We end Sound Perimeter today with Dominican Republic jazz pianist Michel Camilo, accompanied by bassist Anthony Jackson and percussionist Horacio Hernandez, performing From Within. This track was featured in Calle 54, Street 54, a 2000 documentary film about Latin jazz directed by Spanish director Fernando Trueba. This is Leo Uribe, Associate Professor at the University of Arkansas Music Department, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Eureka Springs. You can listen to us anywhere, anytime with the absolutely free KUAF app. It's available for iPhone and iPad. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors to the program included Matthew Moore, Jacqueline Froelich, and Leah Uribe. The Northwest Arkansas Business Journal with Paul Gatling is produced by Stephanie Brock. Additional material for today's show provided by the news staff at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Our theme, titled First Hurrah, performed and written by Daryl Sean. You can find out more about Daryl wherever you find out more about music online. It is certainly great to be back after our holiday break. We will have another brand new show for you tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF. And by the way, if you ever miss a daily edition of Ozarks at Large and want to catch up, you can ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition of our show. Or you can always have access by just subscribing to our absolutely free podcast through any major podcast distributor. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please take care of yourself.